If you have your Bibles, if you want to open up to Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to be putting fewer and fewer passages on the overhead. The reason for that is I want us to get used to jumping around the scriptures a little bit. Doesn't mean I'm not going to put anything up there. I'm going to put passages up there, but we are going to be jumping around multiple portions of scripture today. And so let's do it. Let's do it together. Let's open up our Bibles. Let's wrestle with the text. Let's get used to opening our Bibles. And so with that, let's jump in. Last week, we talked about how the God of Sinai is an intrusive God who won't leave us alone. In a culture that preaches about how our bodies belong to us and that no one has the right to tell us how we can use them, whether we're talking about abortion, what two consenting adults privately engage in with one another, or what we believe our true physical identities are, that sort of God is simply not invited to the party. And the reason why is because we simply don't want to be told what to do. And we want everyone, whether that's God, our neighbors, or a legislator, to stay out of our business. If you're curious at all about what I preached on last Sunday, you can check that out on the website. But then there's the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And we look at God and we say, he finally gets it. This is my stuff. And everyone has to keep their hands off. This commandment implies that private property exists. And that our rights to keeping it private are protected by divine decree. It's been argued that the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation, was based on the Eighth Commandment. I think the argument's compelling, and there's a good chance it was. But I wonder something. I'm curious about something. I wonder if God, in the middle of these ten words that are all about his intrusion into our lives, words about how we belong to him, about how our bodies are not our own, about how every aspect of our life ought to bear the name and image of God. In Christ, a God who was in the form of God, but did not count equality with him to a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, is all of a sudden saying, yeah, that's all true, but you still get to keep all your stuff to yourself. For some reason, I think there's a little bit more going on here. Now, before we go any further this morning, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating for a sort of communism where we should be required to throw everything we own into some sort of communal pot. I, I do think that the eighth word speaks in favor of having a sort of private property and that people cannot simply come and take what does not belong to them. At the same time, I also think that this word is picking at something a little bit deeper and that when we zoom out, what we should be moving toward as those who bear the name of God is a vision of the kingdom that sees all that God has entrusted us with as an opportunity to demonstrate the love and mercy of Christ to a world in desperate need of good news. And so with that, let's take a 
a look. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 20. Let's take a look at this particular commandment. It's verse 15, and it simply says, you shall not steal. Now, the term itself means to take what doesn't belong to you. It's used in the context of stealing material items, but it also refers to stealing livestock. It can refer to kidnapping or man-stealing. Like I said, this is a pretty straightforward command, but the Old Testament does have more to say. And what I think immediately comes to mind with a commandment like this is that sort of direct stealing, the stealing that maybe some of us even participated in as a kid in the mall or at a convenience store. Maybe I'm just being autobiographical. I'm not sure. But there's more involved here. The Old Testament provides categories of do's and don'ts when it comes to stealing, or maybe better, how we engage with the property of others and how we use our own possessions and property, which is what I think the commandment is ultimately getting at, right? There's the clear, do not steal, but as we zoom out and look at the broader scope of Scripture, the broader scope of the narrative of redemption, I do think there's a little bit more here, and I think it's important that we explore that. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And it says in verses 1 through 4, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him, and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. And so what is happening here? To not steal is to bear the responsibility of our neighbor's possessions. Right? We don't live in a finders, keepers, losers, weepers sort of society. Like That's not what it means to be a follower of God. And not only do we take care of a neighbor's possession, but the text seems to imply that we do so at a cost to ourselves, whether the cost be time, resources, whatever the case may be. Not stealing also means we don't defraud our neighbors. I'm really just going bare bones here, basic sort of instruction. And so, so just bear with me. Deuteronomy 19.14 says that you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will uphold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Deuteronomy 25.13-16 says you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small one. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord our God. And so what these passages are getting at is specifically in, when it comes to how we do business, how, how we function in, 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 the, in the world around us, when, when we're selling goods, when we're selling property, when we're buying property, if, if we work in a, in a store or in retail, we're not trying to cheat our customers. We work with integrity. Why? Because we bear the name of God. We bear the name of God. 
it's pretty straightforward, right? Because of who we are as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, as, as those who, who represent as ambassadors of Christ in this world, there's a way we ought to function so that as people look at us and how we function, they what? They catch a glimpse of what? Of what God is like. That's our role. Right? Again, in the same way we talked about it last week, how, how, how sometimes we're just given rules, but we don't necessarily understand the why behind those rules, why we live the way we do, why we conduct business the way we do, why we, we operate with honesty and integrity is because we represent God. We reveal something to the world around us about the nature of who God is. And we're either revealing the true character of God or we're revealing a distortion of who God is. And so, so what these passages are, are dealing with is, is do we have honesty and integrity in how we conduct our affairs, the selling of a car, a home, doing our taxes, whatever the case may be. The point is that the eighth word is a word that fosters a community of trust and dependence upon one another, not exploitation. To bear the name of God is to live in reliable community with one another, caring for one another. Reliable community. That's what we bring to the table as followers of Jesus. That's what we show people as we conduct our affairs? Do do I trust my neighbors, the people in my circle, or am I worried that they're going to take advantage of me? Now, we we can't control what other people do, right? Like, that's not something that, that we have the ability to do, but we can be an example of what that reliable community could be, right? Reliable community, but there's more. How we engage the poor in our midst matters to God, especially as we look at God's particular heart for those who are cast to the side by society, and a neglect of the poor becomes a form of stealing if we exploit those in need rather than care for them. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. And we're looking at verses 35 and following. It says this. It says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger or a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. I I think that's really interesting. Take no interest or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. It's so interesting what, 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 what the Lord does here because he grounds that command in what? What does it say in verse 38? What is he grounding this command to care for the broken in our midst? He's grounding it in their salvation. He's grounding it in their salvation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. I lavished grace upon you. Go and do likewise. It's really what this is all getting at. 
I saved you. Go and do likewise. Live as free people. Live as those who have been rescued from, from, from Pharaoh, and in our case, rescued from the pits of hell. Now go and do likewise. Go and love God and love neighbor. It says, if your brother becomes poor, verse 39 beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. In, in other words, the people of God are not to exploit those who are without. The people of God are not to exploit those who are without. And exploiting those who are without becomes a form of stealing. It comes a form of stealing. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. Verse 9. It says this. I love the sound of pages turning in the Bible. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. And then he says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. What that passage is, is discussing is this concept of gleaning in the Old Testament. When we looked at the book of Ruth, we saw this taking place firsthand. In the story of Ruth, she was instructed to go to the field of Boaz and to glean. And, and what someone who was of means was required to do in Old Testament law was to, was to leave certain portions of their field so that those who were without would be provided for. That those who were without would be provided for. They can go and, and gather grain off the edges. And, and as we saw in the story of Ruth, what Boaz did was, was he told his workers, like, hey, leave, leave way more than you would normally would. Like, I, I really want to take care of this girl. He might have had eyes for her. Well, well, you know, you can go look at that sermon series and, and think about it yourself. But, but he, was, he was caring for the needs of this particular woman, and, and that was the culture of Israel. That's what God had demanded of his people, care for those who are without. And then right after that, that law, it says, you shall not steal. So I can't help but, but, but think that maybe these things are, are closely associated with one another, that, that our care for the broken, our care for the marginalized, our care for the poor, to not do that is, is a form of stealing. So what's the point here? The eighth word while it recognizes the existence of private property, when we zoom out, we see that God entrusts us with private pop property, not so we can swim through our possessions like Scrooge McDuck swam through his piles of money. If you are a child of the 90s, you understand what I'm saying. But rather, we're entrusted with what we have so we can use it to demonstrate the love and grace that God has lavished upon us. That's why we have what we have. But I, I want to I dig a little bit more at this discussion of private property. As I've worked my way through the scriptures, I just don't think I can believe that our American understanding of private property is what God had in mind when he delivered the Eighth Commandment to his people. 
Turn with me to Psalm 24. It says this in the first two verses. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein for or because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so this Psalm of David, and who was David? David was a king. He was a king of Israel. It begins with a declaration about the earth belonging to Yahweh, the Lord. And so the king of Israel, he looks out over all of creation. And remember, he's a king. And and what do kings have? Kings have wealth. Kings have all sorts of possessions. And, And he looks out over creation, and he is struck with the fact that it's simply not his. It doesn't belong to him. But there's more. Not only does the earth belong to Yahweh, but also the fullness thereof. In other words, everything in all of creation belongs to God. But there's even more. Not only does everything belong to God, but those who dwell therein. And so what does these, this first verse of Psalm 24 teach us? It teaches us that creation is a possession of God's, its contents belong to God, and its inhabitants belong to God. It's all God's. Why? Well, verse 2 tells us that it's because God has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In other words, because he made it. He created it. It's his. It all belongs to him. The point I'm trying to make is that we really don't own anything. That's the point I'm trying to make. But rather, we have been made stewards or guardians of God's creation. Stewards or guardians of God's creation. So in the same way, as we discussed last week, we are not permitted to dictate how we use our bodies. We are also called to submit all of what has been entrusted to us to God. And this is where the law starts to feel intrusive. Now, not only is God in our bedrooms, he's in our pocketbooks. That's what's happening here. And as, as, as we dig into the Ten Commandments, we're recognizing more and more that God is not some deistic God that, that, that created all things and then walked away and said, have at it. No, he's a God that created all things, and he says, I'm in it with you. And guess what? I make the rules of the game. And, and, and here's where we need to remember, what are these rules about? They're rules of freedom that, that teach us how to live a life of flourishing. And we know that's true, because when we submit ourselves to the laws of God, we do experience a sense of freedom. We do experience a sense of, of grace and peace that, that we don't experience when we are running from the laws of God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not fun to break the laws of God. Because I think too often we hear in Christian circles like, well, you'll be miserable if you sin. We all know that's not true, right? We all know that's not true. Sin is fun in the moment. It just is. We can't pretend that that's not the case. Or else no one would do it. We just wouldn't do it. But what the law is getting at is that if you live your life this way, 
in sin, breaking my commandments, you're going to wake up one day and recognize that while you might have had some fun, you got nothing. You're empty. What I am teaching you is that if you submit to my law, you will experience true freedom. You will experience a sense of flourishing. So, like I said, in the same way, we are not permitted to dictate how we use our bodies. We are also not permitted to dictate how we use our stuff. Yes, you shall not steal, but if everything belongs to God, we must hold all that we have with open hands recognizing that we've been entrusted with it to serve the overarching commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's where it's all driving towards. And this is where Jesus kind of picks up. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I might be done early today. That's okay. I kept you guys for 50 minutes last week, so. We'll see. I can always add more. <laughs> we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 19 through 34. And we're going to split this section up in two because I believe that Jesus is talking to two types of people here. And as he speaks to both of these people, he's getting at the heart of theft, namely greed and fear. Greed and fear. And so let's look at verses 19 through 21 first. It says this, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is discussing this idea of treasure. All right, the term itself means what we would imagine it to mean, material items that are of value, valuables. See, the problem, though, with the earthly sort of treasure is that it is susceptible to the brokenness of this world, which includes thieves who break in and steal. In other words, this is a matter of wisdom. This is like financial wisdom. If you're sitting with a financial advisor, they're going to tell you you should invest in, in something that's going to pay more dividends or, or pay more money out at the end of whatever, I'm, clearly I'm not an investor, right? Rather than investing in something that you're going to lose on. And so what he's saying is, is, hey, this is a better deal. It's a better deal to lay up treasures in heaven than it is to lay up treasures on earth. Why? Because in heaven, there, there's, there's nothing that's going to destroy your treasure. And, and there's no one that can steal your treasure. While on earth, that stuff's all susceptible to the brokenness and fallenness of this world. And this is why Jesus is encouraging his listeners to shift their gaze from what is temporal toward what is eternal. Like, we need to remember, what's the point of the commandments? It's to teach God's people how to live lives of freedom. They are rules for the liberated life. It's the path given by God that leads to flourishing. And Jesus is building upon that very foundation. You who are able to lay up for yourself treasure, you who are able to lay up for yourself treasure, you need to know that not all treasure is created equal. Turn with me to Matthew 19.
If you look in verse 16, it says this. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, if you would be complete, is really what that word's getting at, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. This man missed the heart of the commandments. Instead of being formed by them, formed by God, he saw them as a means to an end. But God was after his heart, which was wrapped up in his stuff. God was after his heart, which was wrapped up in his stuff. He used the commandments as a means to an end. He didn't get that they were the path to the liberated life. He didn't understand that that walking in faithfulness was more so about him experiencing a relationship with God. What he saw them as was a means to get what he wanted. It's like, no, I'm doing it good, right? I, I, it's, and this is where we need to, to wrap our minds up. I'm going I'm to deviate a little bit. I'm going to take a short little excursus. It's, it's when we proclaim the good news of faith to people, when we proclaim the good news of the gospel to people, what they're receiving and what we received when we bent our knee to King Jesus is we didn't receive a ticket to heaven. We received God. Do you see the distinction? Our faith and, and the benefit we receive is salvation, not so we can just like float on a cloud for all eternity, strumming on a harp or guitar or whatever instrument you prefer, but it's so we can be in the presence of God for all eternity to have a relationship with God, regardless of what we possess, regardless of what stuff we might have. That's why like sort of teachings like, like prosperity teaching that says, if you have a certain amount of faith, you will have a certain amount of stuff just doesn't make sense. It's not the message of the gospel. God is the end-all and be-all of our faith. We get God. That's what we need to wrap our minds around. It's not just a ticket to paradise. It's not like you get saved and you get to go to Hawaii for eternity. That's not the point. Because as as one preacher used to say, if, if heaven didn't have Jesus, then it's not heaven. If eternity doesn't have God, then then we don't really want it. That's the point. That's what's going on here. Let's jump back to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 22 through 24. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so this is why Jesus makes the point that it is impossible for us to serve both God and money, or to worship both God and money, or to worship both God and our possessions. It doesn't mean 
We can't have these things, but we need to recognize what they are. They are gifts from God entrusted to us so that we might use them in the service of both God and neighbor. That's the point. That's why we have stuff. That's why we have what we have. That's, that's the point. It's not so we can keep getting more stuff. It's so that we can serve the, the, the needs of the kingdom of God, which is loving God and loving neighbor. We do that in this church. So I don't want to, us to hear this as a condemnation. So I really want to make that clear. But I want to give us a reason why we do it. Why are, we, why are we generous? Because it's the overflow of our hearts because of the grace that's been lavished upon us by God. And I see this taking place in our church. I've been on the receiving end of it in this church. I'm grateful to be a part of a body that is willing to hold what they have with open hands. And if that's not you, then you should feel the conviction of the Spirit. Not in a condemning way, but in an offer to walk in freedom. That's how we need to hear these, these commands, these words, these rules for the liberated life, as an offer to walk in freedom so that we might experience the flourishing of the kingdom of heaven. But now there's another person I want to talk to. And this second person in verses 25 through 34, he's fueled by fear. It says this, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This person isn't in the layup treasure category. This person doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. That's their category. And what does Jesus do? He encourages this person to not be anxious, which, let's be honest, anyone who has been behind the eight ball financially at any point in their lives knows that this is way easier said than done, especially when we're not sure how we're actually going to make ends meet. He then goes through creation, pointing to how God provides for the birds, the lilies of the field, etc., and then he gets to the point he's driving at. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. A couple of things. I don't think Jesus is saying we're all going to be fine and everything is going to be okay if we remain faithful. He can't mean that 
because so much of the human experience has clearly demonstrated otherwise. Can't mean that. But what he is doing is he's calling for us to reorient our gaze and that even though we might not have all that we desire, there is still a way to live that reflects the rule and reign of God. And that way is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, which means living a life of submission to God, of service to God, and not the stuff of this world. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, cool, great, Pastor Jonathan, that's awesome, but what about my bank account? What about my bills? What about my, my table? This is where we need to wrap our minds around the beauty of the people of God. We just have to. This is where the first person that we talked about in verses 19 through 24 has an opportunity to shine a little bit here. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, it's a familiar passage. There's a community of faith in the early church that understands this. It says, and they devoted themselves, verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, I, I believe that a cross-shaped vision of possessions, of wealth, leads to communities of faith that look like that. I believe that. I believe that that's an ideal, and I get it. And, and what's important to understand, no one's forcing these people to sell all their possessions. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They are so moved by their salvation, by their, by their relationship to God, that they're looking around and they're saying, there's brokenness here and we, can, and we can help. That's what this is really getting at. There is an ideal that we can strive towards as followers of Jesus. And, and check out what happens in this community. What, what happens as a result? It says, it says, praising God and having favor. In verse 47, if you look down there, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, all the people doesn't mean just the people in their midst. All the people that are kind of peering over the fence and looking like, what, what's going on there? And they're like, there's something, there's something different going on in that community. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I can't help but imagine that, that those salvations that were taking place in the early church were directly connected to the generosity of the early church, to this radical sort of love that was taking place in their midst. I can't help but imagine that is the case. It has to be. I mean, look at the text. They're, they're right there. It's linked to each other. So something beautiful was happening in that early church. And, and you know what? I'm going to say it again because I don't want us to feel condemnation. I want us to feel conviction. Those are two different things. That's important, right? The enemy condemns us and accuses us. God, by his spirit, convicts us 
And, and I think with conviction, there's a sense of excitement, like, oh, I want to I wanna serve God. I want to I change this because I want to honor God. And so I want to make this clear. I'm not speaking a word of condemnation. And in fact, what I've seen in this church is some of this stuff actually taking place. I mean, if, if you know anything about our benevolence fund, it's, it's pretty robust. Am I, am I right, Rich? And, and, we, and we give freely to those who are in need. And, and some of those people are right here in our midst that, that experience, that have been on the receiving end of that giving. And so I want to encourage us that, that this is taking place. And I want to challenge us, let's see it take place even more. Let's see it take place even more. Let's be radically generous so that others might, might experience the, the freedom of, of walking in, 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 in grace and in, 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 in community, in reliable community. What I believe the point of all of this is that if both these people, and let's name them for who they are, the wealthy and the poverty-stricken, if both of these people recognize that Jesus is actually who he says he is and that his kingdom is truly in our midst, then there is treasure for both of them. There's treasure for both of them. There's treasure for the rich person who uses what God has entrusted to them to care for and alleviate the anxiety and worry of the one who is without And there's treasure for the one who is struggling in that their needs are being met by the very hands and feet of Jesus. Did you know there's there's treasure in humility? There's treasure in that. We see that in the person of Jesus. We see that as we look at Philippians chapter 2, the one who was humble to the point of death, even death on a cross, what was the result of that humility? But he was raised up to new life and seated at the right hand of the Father. But there's another treasure at work here, the treasure that we just looked at in Acts chapter 2, the treasure of bearing the name of God and demonstrating to a watching world what it looks like to live as the body of Christ, a reliable community of faith. The calling for both is the same. Trust God. Trust God. For the person with treasure, God is saying to us, trust me. Trust me and trust that what you have is not your own and that it has been given to you for my glory and the good of your neighbor. And when you catch that vision, you will experience the blessing that comes with giving. Why? Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. For the person struggling with anxiety and worry about how they're going to make ends meet, God is saying to us, trust me. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but continue to be faithful. Do not allow what you lack to blind you to what you have, because what you have is me. Blessed are you who are poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. The point that I want us to ultimately walk away with this morning is that the commandment not to steal, while it's simple and it's clear, if we fail to look at the entire storyline of the Bible, we will fail to fully grasp what it's truly getting at. The scriptures are overwhelmingly clear. 
we truly don't own anything. It all belongs to God. It's given to us so that we might use it for his glory and the good of others. When we fail to recognize that, this is important, we are guilty of breaking the eighth commandment because we become guilty of stealing from God himself. I want us to be careful here. I, I do want a caveat for just one minute. Has anyone, has, have we seen Schindler's List? The end of Schindler's List, there's a scene where Oscar Schindler is, is looking at all his stuff. And he's like, I could have sold this ring. I could have sold this car. I could have done this. 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 And, and, and he just, he's overwhelmed with guilt. It's not what I believe this is getting at. I don't think that's the point here. I don't think we need to go home and feel bad about our stuff. I want us to reorient our vision for why God has entrusted it to us. There's a difference. It's massively important. Can't walk home and feel bad because you happen to own a nice car. Like, don't do that to yourself. That's not the point. The point is to recognize that what God has entrusted to you is his, and it's for his glory and the good of your neighbors, and to hold it with open hands, to be willing and available to serve Christ. The commandment teaches us how to bear the name of God, the commandments in general, to reflect his image to the world around us, to show the world what God is like. Who is the God we are revealing to the world around us, to our neighbors, to one another? It is the God who did not take or steal, but rather he gave. He gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news. And those of us who believe it to be true, we need to reflect that belief in the way we live with one another and for one another so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's the point as we zoom out and look at the context of the scriptures and understand a biblical theology of possessions. When we say a biblical theology, it's how the scriptures build on a particular theme throughout the narrative of redemption, throughout the scriptures. And I think as we work our way through the text, we recognize it all belongs to God. We need to trust him. It all belongs to God, and we need to trust him. And we need to look to the gift of God's grace that we possess in Christ, our salvation, and that one day we will see him face to face and experience that glory for all eternity. That's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for your grace. We really do. I pray that we would receive your grace and live in light of your grace. Father, walk with us. 
Help us to see you more clearly. Conform us more and more into the image of your Son. Renew our minds by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.